couple of years ago, we went up to Parliament to lobby our MP. We were among many people who went that day to make the case for an electoral system that's fit for purpose, by which we mean one that returns a government that represents the majority. Well, we sat in the lobby of Parliament and filled out the usual green card, which was sent in to the House of Commons. And after only a few minutes, our MP came out to see us. Well, at least that bit of the system works. Well, we put our case to him for a proper electoral system. Actually, the kind that Parliament itself had very nearly voted in, just a few yards from where we were sitting, all the way back in 1918. Well, then our MP gave us a lecture on how the present system was much better than the old one before, which had been nothing but rotten boroughs and pocket boroughs, tiny towns with just a few voters who were easily bought for a pint of beer. We tried to point out that no historian believes any of that old stuff anymore and that John was writing a book about it. But our MP was already not listening to us. The point is that back, for example, in the 18th century, as historians now know, listening to us, the ordinary person, is exactly what an MP would have been doing. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Just exactly why people like our MP believed that the old so-called unreformed electoral system in Britain was so bad is a story in itself, and it's worth looking at before we get on to look at that book of mine. The old system was based on what they called virtual representation, which meant, of course, nothing to do with being online, but (laughs) rather that only certain people had the vote, which they were expected to exercise on behalf of everyone else. Now, Even if that had worked in small medieval constituencies where everybody knew everybody else, it was obviously impractical in the enormous towns that emerged towards the end of the 18th century. Well, by the 1830s, it was all a plain scandal, and the system simply had to be changed in what became known as the Great Reform Act. Now, the reformers in the 1830s made all kinds of claims about corruption and abuse in the old system. Well, they had to, otherwise they couldn't have persuaded the MPs, who had, of course, been elected by the old system, to accept reform. But the point of all this is that reformers created a stink about the old so-called unreformed system, and that the smell lingered on long after the old system had been swept away. In 1928, a young historian called Lewis Namier was writing a book about 18th century politics, just before the Great Reform Act. For various personal reasons, Namie was a rather right-wing character, and he was appalled by the drift of events in the 1920s when the first two Labour governments were elected. Horror. Namier believed that it was absurd to imagine that working-class people knew anything at all about politics. Political problems, he wrote, do not deeply affect the lives and consciousness of ordinary men, and little real thought is given them by these men. Now, most other historians in the 1920s were writing about Britain's wonderful constitution and empire. You can get some idea about this from our episode on the 1930s satirical book, 1066 and all that, 
written by Walter Seller and Julian Yetman. Who in fact heard Namie a lecture, what Julian Yetman had, when he was in Oxford. Seller and Yetman thought Britain's constitution and empire were ridiculous because they were run for their own purposes by a tiny conservative minority. And Namia thought they were ridiculous because they were not run by a tiny conservative minority or not a small enough minority. Politicians, he believed, were a grubby crowd of self-seeking imbeciles with few beliefs and even fewer morals. Better to leave things to the very few who truly understood what was best for the rest. Well, Namie's book finally came out in 1929 and created quite a sensation. Well, a quiet one among historians. The public definitely, <laughs> the public definitely preferred 1066 and all that, which was much funnier. Namia had analysed the members of Parliament in the 1760s with a particular focus on the rural county of Shropshire. MPs in Shropshire, he found, were almost all country squires. Well, there's a surprise. And many of their papers still survived in country houses, which in Shropshire are particularly thick on the ground. Namia, in fact, seems to have made a grand tour of stately piles, not only in Shropshire, but across most of the rest of the country. If you look in his acknowledgements at the front of the book, you find that he visited the Duke of Bedford, the Lady Berwick, the Duke of Buccleuch, Bowood, Dunster Castle, Newnham House, Lindley Hall, well, the list goes on and on. Well, having read all these aristocrats' letters and wills and tax records and club memberships, Namia discovered all he needed to know. The old reformers had been right. The MPs were a bunch of self-seeking grafters without an idea in their head except to get a seat in Parliament and then parrot whatever government ministers said so that they could win a government job and make money. How on earth do such disreputable and clueless chances keep getting elected as MPs? Well, according to Namia, what the MPs' papers show, and the papers of their aristocratic friends, is that it was a process of bullying and buying, corrupting and compelling, that had gone on for centuries under the old, unreformed system of elections. Plebeians were purchased and pushed about by patricians. <laughs> so, had our MP been correct? Well, actually, no. For some decades in the middle of the last century, most historians believed that 18th century British politics were completely corrupt. Lewis Namie's 1929 book had blown a large hole in the idea that Britain's unwritten constitution had somehow been safeguards of great British liberty and progress. Well, Namie's book is now nearly a hundred years old. It will not, therefore, surprise you to discover that, well, except in the lobby of the House of Commons, Namia's view of the nation's parliamentary past is no longer what historians think. Now, this process of rewriting history is not, as Mrs Thatcher and apparently our MP appeared to believe, a left-wing plot. As a scientist, Mrs Thatcher should really have known better. It's simply got to do with data. The thing is that historical records keep on turning up. Historians used to construct their narratives from easily available papers, printed books, royal archives, parliamentary papers. Then they started using aristocratic archives. And then, in fact, following the example of Lewis Namie in the 1930s, they began reading the papers of the gentry. 
But the point is they didn't stop there. They then looked at the papers of the larger, better organised institutions, like the Church of England diocese and the large corporate towns, which had kept proper archives. And then, as local records offices were reorganised in the 1970s, they read the records of parishes and smaller communities too, which were being rescued from mouldy parish chests and corporation vaults and put into proper archive storage. Well, what are we supposed to do with all these records? Refuse to look at all this stuff in case we find something that rocks the boat? Or maybe throw all the records away, like some nightmare version of the Home Office with its Windrush papers? Since at least the 1970s, although very few in Parliament have apparently been aware of it, pretty much all of British history has been completely rewritten. And that's simply because we've got round at last to reading all those local records. And of course, when you stop to think about it for a second, a local perspective was the way things looked to pretty much everybody during almost all of our history. So, among professional historians, British history looks completely different now from the way it did a couple of generations ago. But at least until the 1990s, that was true for every period except one. Lewis Namier's shadow still loomed so heavily over the 18th century that that period was still being written largely from the papers of central government and the gentry. It was still, in the title of a well-thumbed old textbook, the, quote, aristocratic century. It was as if time had stood still since 1930. But then at last, even the 18th century woke up. For generations, British history has been completely rewritten as more and more documents are archived and catalogued and studied by historians and local records especially completely change our perspective. So, let's open the archive and see what we can discover about the 18th century. Let's go to the King's Head in Bridgewater, a town near the Somerset coast. Now, as you guessed, this isn't a random visit. You can find it in John's new book, Partisan Politics, which is just out, published very handsomely indeed by the University of Exeter Press. And you can find a hefty 45% discount if you look on the publications page of our website, historycafe.org. It's a book written almost entirely from local records. Anyway, back to the King's Head in Bridgewater. It's May 1721, and there are a number of people drinking at the bar. In one corner, we find a man called John Slape. We find in local records that he's a small-time local lawyer, a deputy to the town clerk, John Webber, clerk to the local craftsman's company of hammermen, and assistant to a rather important local lawyer and councillor, Robert Steer. Anyway, today, Slape is at the bar in conversation with a soldier, Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Hamilton. The Lieutenant Colonel is the commanding officer of a detachment of dragoons who've been billeted in the town. Uh, troops often were quartered in Bridgewater, probably because it had the misfortune to lie on an important crossroads. In 1721, after all, soldiers didn't have permanent barracks and had to be put up somewhere. So let's let the lawyer Slape take up the story. According to him, the colonel, quotes, began a discourse concerning Whig and Tory. And the colonel then asked this informant, that's Slape who's telling the story, whether he was not a Tory and whether he was for no resistance and passive obedience. To which this informant answered him that as he had taken an oath to King George, so he thought in his conscience he was obliged to stand to it, and the king, 
upon any pretense whatsoever. So the soldier is asking Slape whether he would rebel against the king, George, and Slape replies that he wouldn't. Our soldier in the pub, Colonel Hamilton, had done his homework. Slape was indeed a Tory. Or at least he strongly looks like one to us, because we know from reading all the local records that almost every single one of his connections was a Tory. His boss, the lawyer Robert Steer, was head of a moderate Anglican Tory faction in the town council. Now this little scene in the pub is not at all what you'd expect if you listened to Lewis Namier. Remember he said political problems do not deeply affect the lives and consciousness of ordinary men and little real thought is given them by these men. But here are two ordinary blokes talking about political problems over a pint in the King's Head in the little Somerset town in 1721. And it's something that obviously affects them and they've given plenty of thought to. Nowadays, Bridgewater has something like 40,000 inhabitants and it's thought of as a small town. In 1721, it had about 2,500 people. By modern standards, it was just a big village. But it's obvious from the conversation in the King's Head that politics mattered in the way people lived their lives, did their business and even chose their friends. And they'd certainly given real thought to it. Just listen carefully and you discover that this isn't just some casual chat. No resistance. Passive obedience. These are contemporary ideas that matter very much to moderate Tories like Slape. Uh, the reason was this, that back in 1688, the Stuart King, James II, had fled England and been replaced by William III of Orange. He was followed by Anne, who was the last of the Stuart kings and queens. If you remember Livia Coleman in The Favourite. Yeah, well, she died without any children in 1714. But instead of summoning James II back, the king who fled, an exceedingly distant royal relation was crowned King of England. George I had until then been elector or ruler of the humble little German state of Hanover. And that's where we get our German royal family, anything to keep out the Catholic King James II. Now there were those with extreme Tory opinions who believed this was an outrage against God's right to choose kings. To them, James II was the rightful king, not George I. In fact, these so-called Jacobites, from the Latin Jacobus, meaning James, attempted a rising in Scotland and the north of England between August and November of 1715. On the 20th of October, the day of George's coronation, with the rising still in full swing, Jacobite mobs rioted in towns up and down the country. There'd been a serious riot just down the road from Bridgewater in Taunton. King George's supporters had been intending to hold a celebration at the Castle Tavern. Well, the mob, led by a carpenter, William Garway, burned the tavern to the ground. Well, the Jacobite rising had got nowhere, and most historians agree Jacobitism never again really threatened to become a serious threat, at least not until another abortive rising in 1745. But for moderate Tories like Slape, it was clearly a problem. He couldn't even have a quiet drink in a pub without some soldier coming over and asking him which side was he on. Did he believe in resistance to King George or no resistance? In other words, was he a Jacobite? Now a lot, I mean a lot, was at stake here. If you were shown to be a Jacobite, you could be charged with treason, with dire consequences. In fact, Bridgewater's recorder, a kind of glorified town clerk who was usually a local gentleman, had been accused of Jacobitism and fled to the Netherlands, which makes you think he was probably guilty. Now, everybody drinking in the king's head would have known all about the town's recorder fleeing for his life and about plenty of other things that had been going on in Bridgewater. 
1716, a new customs collector had arrived in Bridgewater, in charge of collecting customs duties on ships arriving at the town's quays. He was a local man, John Oldmixon, but for years he'd been in London, recently making a name for himself, writing propaganda pamphlets for the Whig governments appointed by the new King George. It's perfectly possible that Olmixon had been sent down to Bridgewater, which he regarded as a terrible place, the back of beyond, to keep an eye out for local Jacobites. He certainly sent a string of panic-stricken letters to his bosses, saying that the place was a hotbed of treason. Actually, his superiors in London ignored him, and we probably should ignore him too. But John Oldmixon and his Whiggish ways were deeply unpopular with some of the people in Bridgewater. The town council immediately elected his predecessor, the previous customs collector, as a town councillor. One local Whig spluttered that this man was a, an inconsiderate puppy, rascal, blockhead, numbskull. But the council promptly made him mayor. Anyway. <laughs> These ordinary Bridgewater people were clearly thinking hard about party politics. In fact, by the time our man was sitting down to his drink, it was all boiling up towards a full-blown fight in the streets. Most present-day MPs would probably like to think that our present electoral system is the best possible, and certainly better than the corrupt mishmash that came before reform in the 1830s. But the more historians have read the local records of the 18th century, the more we realise that things were not quite what they seem. We've dropped into Bridgewater in 1721. It's a scene from John's new book, just published by the University of Exeter Press. Well, early in that year, 1721, what remained of Bridgewater Castle, which wasn't very much, along with its lands in and around the town, had been bought by James Bridges, the Duke of Chandos. Now, the Duke of Chandos was Lewis Namier's kind of man. He'd wangled his way into Parliament and from there into a series of government jobs, out of which he'd become fantastically wealthy. In 1719, King George had made him a duke. Well, in 1721, Chandos buys Bridgewater Castle explicitly, he says, because, quotes, the estate is of that consequence that it would secure the election of one of the members of Parliament. In other words, the Duke is barging into the little Somerset town so that he can dictate who one of its two MPs should be. He thought he'd effectively bought the seat and he could give it to whoever he chose. So much for democracy, huh? Namia was right. Well, just hang in there with us. So, the Duke sent his agent down to the town to butter up the little local bigwigs. One of them was Robert Steer, who was the boss to our lawyer at the pub, John Slape. Lewis Namier would definitely have written both Steer and Slape off as small fry, easy to push aside. At least I suppose the Duke was making a show of taking them seriously. And the Duke soon discovered it was all much more complicated than he'd thought. OK, here's just a summary of the news headlines. One party of local Whigs gets kicked out in 1712 because they are religious dissenters. Another lot convert to Anglicanism so that they can keep their seats. In 1716, they take two of their Tory opponents to court for rape. They also accuse the Tory mayor of going along to the Swan Inn and telling the musicians to strike up the king shall enjoy his own again, which is, you won't be surprised to hear, the outlawed Jacobite anthem. Well, the mayor retorts he wouldn't recognise the tune if you played it to him. <laughs> and anyway, uh, nobody had played it. <laughs> um, uh, so how did he, how did he know? Um, 
1718, the Tory council charged the Whig customs man, John Olmickson, with riot. They then kicked the remaining Whigs out of the council because they're boycotting its meetings. The Whigs take the council to court and prove its charter is illegal. Now the two Tory factions, moderates and extremes, begin fighting each other. In 1720, the town's vicar dies and his widow keeps his death secret for ten days so that the Jacobite Tories, who happen to have the upper hand just then, can't nominate a Tory successor. And so on and on and on. Well, you can imagine the atmosphere in the King's Arms when our man Slape is talking to Colonel Hamilton. Everybody's probably talking about politics. Just a couple of weeks later, in June 1721, there's very nearly a full-scale riot in Bridgewater. It was the birthday of the rival Jacobite King James. Every year on that day there was fun and games in the streets. Nothing really treasonable, just what the historian Nicholas Rogers has called, quotes, subversive laughter, the kind of waggish name-calling of local rivalries. Colonel Hamilton wakes up to find someone stuck a turnip over the door of his bed. <laughs> the turnip. turnip being the Jacobite's pet favourite term of abuse for King George. Young women and apprentices start parading through the streets wearing white roses, which was the Jacobite badge. In fact, according to Old Mixon, the mayor's wife had gone through the town, quotes, stuck all over with white roses to encourage the like insolence in the rabble. She also boasted that the soldiers wouldn't dare go into the meat market, where the butchers, led by the one-eyed Lawrence Bryant, were the Tories' best allies. And when the soldiers did try, and tried to grab one of the white roses, the butchers started rattling their knives with pretty obvious intent. Well, the soldiers go off to the mayor to complain, but discover he's left town for the day. All day, the soldiers complained, the local town constables, who were unpaid officials chosen to keep order in their particular street, had done nothing but stir trouble up. So, it's no wonder that Colonel Hamilton had been quizzing John Slape, who you remember was assistant to the leader of the moderate Tories, about whether he believed in non-resistance and passive obedience. The whole of Bridgewater's on edge, and the colonel's trying to work out which side the town's moderate Tories were on, and whether he could count on them in the trouble he expected any day. Well, Slape gives a careful lawyer's reply. He'd sworn loyalty to King George, so the colonel could work out the rest for himself. It's a conversation of pretty considerable political sophistication. It's amazing what you can find out about the past from local records. Even conversations in a pub. Meanwhile, the Duke of Chandos, who you remember in 1721 had planned on buying himself at least one of the constituency seats in Parliament, was discovering that he'd blundered into a vicious local political struggle. Within a few weeks, the new vicar was writing to him, telling him that if he knew what was best, he'd keep well out of it for the time being. Chandos sheepishly agreed. However, the Duke of Chandos had read his name here. <laughs> OK, of course, Neighbour didn't write his stuff till 200 years later, but Chandos looks exactly like his kind of man. He set out creating what was known as an interest, by which Namia always understood a financial grip on the constituency. The Duke built a fine new street of houses, still there, lovely, where a number of the town's wealthiest men went to live. He considered building a sugar factory, a shipyard and a cloth mill. Finally, he settled for a glass factory, a soapworks and a distillery. Well, the soapworks got nowhere, but local people happily invested in the glass factory and the distillery. Within a few years, the Duke had got working for him almost all the leading men in the town, at least from the Whig and moderate church Tory parties. 
So after all the noise and excitement and white roses and butcher's knives... And turnips. Bridgewater had become just another of those corrupt boroughs. Well, don't you believe it? John's new book reconstructs a whole series of stories about local life in the early 18th century. It asks whether there was or was not any real democracy in Britain at that time. We've been tracing just one of those stories in Bridgewater in the 1720s. King George died in 1727, and as the law then was, there had to be a general election. Well, the Duke of Chandos, who you remember had invested thousands of pounds in the town, confidently expected that he could now tell the people of Bridgewater who they should elect. Well, you can imagine his horror when he discovered that the man he backed suddenly pulled out of the contest. He had, he said, no chance of winning. I believe, spluttered the Duke, there has hardly been a juncture when men of your character have been more wanted and desired to be in the legislature. Uh, There's no use. All the Duke's new tenants and investors were ignoring him and putting up candidates of their own. In fact, in 1734, having invested the astronomical sum of £15,000 in the town, the Duke sold off his Bridgewater estate in disgust, having not been able to nominate a single MP. So what was going on? Read the local records and you discover that the Duke had been completely bamboozled by any number of local factors. For example, we discover that his expensive building developments, the fancy houses and factory schemes were being run by local Quakers. It doesn't look as though he realised this, but it was a disaster since at this period Quakers wanted nothing to do with politics. Then we find that the Duke's new tenants and investors all belonged to different local parties. They were never going to agree on anything. And they were all rather well-to-do local figures, professionals and tradesmen who were not about to be pushed around anyway by some duke just because he flashed his money around. They just took his cash and ignored him, thank you very much. Let's just say that Lewis Namier would have been rather uncomfortable sitting in Bridgewater's King's Arms in the 1720s. What all this tells us is that Namier had been misled by his sources. Of course, men like the Duke of Chandos puffed away in their papers about having an interest in this town or that and choosing the MPs. But it doesn't mean they actually did. I remember telling this story to a seminar in London where a very distinguished historian, Jack Fisher, was in the audience. Fisher laughed and said he'd grown up in Newmarket as a stable lad. All these toffs would come to town for the races and think they ran the place, he said. Little did they know that we, the stable lads, were quietly running circles around them. <laughs> What reading the local records has told us over the last 20 or 30 years is that in the 18th century, it was not the gentry, but the local power brokers who actually ran the constituencies. They were modestly prosperous local men like the Bridgewater lawyer Robert Steer, who made it his business to get involved in the council and in the local church and who employed people with similar views to get things done, like our friend the lawyer John Slape at the bar. But even local bigwigs like Steer couldn't just do what they liked. They had to stay in with the local tradespeople because they brought them their business and did all the day-to-day -day unpaid local government jobs like policing the streets and running the markets, including the meat market and those bully boy butchers. In the course of a few years, pretty much every householder in a place like Bridgewater would have played some part 
in local government. That's extraordinary, whether it's paid or not. All, not all paid. Unpaid, all unpaid. What I discovered researching the book, Partisan Politics, is that Bridgewater wasn't unusual. In fact, I looked at seven little towns, and in each one of them I found stories just like this one from Bridgewater. In Dartmouth, we can sit in the pretty church on the headland and watch the parish clerk doing his party piece, making the congregation laugh at election times by choosing psalms that sound as if they're about local party politics. What it tells you is that everyone's pretty clued up about local politics here. Except this Sunday, the congregation is stonily silent. Lean over and ask the person in the pew next to you, what's going on? And they whisper back that it's because the parish clerk and his mates have been going round the town, stirring up trouble for the lovely local curate. And he's a popular man, this local curate, because he teaches the kids and he gives medicine to the sick. It's all become very political. In fact, according to the curate, the town clerk has been meeting at a tavern, the hole in the wall, with, quote, a knot of tailors in abundance, shoemakers, blacksmiths and the like professions. These are his confidence and intimados. I love that phrase, confidence and intimados. And these he instructs in politics, how they are to manage affairs and order the Leviathan of Dartmouth. The Leviathan of Dartmouth. That's laugh out loud funny. It's a reference to a book of high political philosophy that had been written by the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes in 1651. Talk about finding ordinary people who cared about politics. Dartmouth is buzzing with it. And it wasn't just these towns. Yeah, I once spent several days in the public record office going through the records of King's Bench, one of the London courts. At that time, they were uncatalogued, just bundles tied up with pink string. It was breathtaking. As each stiff paper unfolded, sand from where the ink had been dried spilled onto the desk, and the voices of local people floated up and out of the past. I was riding in the hills above Tiverton on the day before mayor-making. I was talking to my friend about the state of politics in the town when, would you believe it, the mayor himself rode past on his way out of town. And the next day, of course, all hell breaks loose when the townspeople discover that no new mayor can be elected because the old one's gone off for the town's papers and the Guildhall key. <laughs> and stories like this came tumbling out from towns all over England. In fact, I thought if I'd stayed in academic life, I should have written a book about these cases. It's now been written, better than I would have done, by Paul Halliday, who was a professor at the University of Virginia. It's called Dismembering the Body Politic, and it charts dozens of these conflicts at King's Bench from 1650 to 1730. John's book, Partisan Politics, is in a small way its partner because it looks at these same conflicts, not from the perspective of the court where they ended up in London, but from the streets and town halls and parish churches where they started. It's a world of lively, not to say riotous, overheated, rumbustious, often embittered, endlessly partisan, endlessly changing and challenging local politics. What reading the local records tells us is that it was a world of lively local democracy. Early on in my research, I lodged with the lady who worked in the planning department of one of the towns in my book. Now, it used to be said, by historians of Namie's persuasion, that 18th century town councils were as completely corrupt as the MPs were. Well, I would come back from the town archives each day, having found plenty of local partisanship, bickering, backstabbing, even breakdown of government. Um, I really couldn't find anything that looked like corruption. The joke was that my landlady came back from her job in the local council planning office every day, complaining that it was riddled with corruption, with local councillors getting planning permission to build whatever they wanted and giving contracts to their friends. 
isn't she the one who gave you 14 Brussels sprouts for supper one evening? Uh, 24, in fact. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she's anyway. A great, she's a great lady. The fact appears to be that modern British government is not only less democratic, but actually might be more corrupt than it was in the 18th century. Not might be, it definitely is. Of course, it wasn't a golden age. The pettiness of much local partisan bickering would have driven us all crazy. Yeah, local quarrels got blown up into horrible feuds. Doing everything locally must often have been limiting and suffocating and frustrating. But modern historical research is telling us quite clearly that something at least was working. Anyway, read the book and make your own mind up. When John had finished his original research, which took him five years, he wrote it up as a doctoral thesis. And then the trouble started. Yeah, at that time, the dead hand of Lewis Namier still had such a grip on the 18th century that it was impossible to think of any historian of the period who would agree with me. Well, I had to find someone to be my examiners. One, Paul Slack, was and is one of the founding fathers of urban history. Great guy. That, yeah. was, that was a good start. And the other? Well, let's not name names. He was a well-known professor who wrote about the politics of the period. Of course, what I'd written directly contradicted pretty much everything he'd ever written. If I was right about this lively local politics, well, a whole lifetime of research... So the interview didn't go very well. Well, let's just say the professor, well, lost his temper, accused me, in fact, of making it all up. Paul Slack suggested I left the room and took a walk around the garden, and he later told me he told the other guy to pull himself together. But you did get the doctorate. Yes, but it was obviously going to be impossible to get the thing published. Nobody was going to believe so me. So you went to work in television? Yeah. And then, more than 30 years later, a good friend, Jonathan Barry, who is still an academic, told me to take another look. And what did you find? Well, I discovered that in the meantime, the whole Namier orthodoxy, the aristocratic century, had completely collapsed. Everybody basically now agreed with me. But, and this is the best thing of all, there was still time to bring out a book on these little towns. Well, in fact, average-sized towns for the period, because nobody had yet looked so closely at the way they worked. Economies, churches, local government, party political, everything. But a, you had a lot of new reading to do. Yeah, well, there'd been wonderful new work on these local power brokers, on structures of credit, the way parish government worked, the way things like customs and excise worked, on the dockyard near Plymouth, which was one of my towns, on the cloth trade in Tiverton, another of my towns even some new archives also, and all just adding to what I'd found. So, Partisan Politics, the book, at last gets to hit the bookshops. Published by the University of Exeter Press, and you can find a hefty 45% discount if you look on the publication page of our website, historycafe.org. Congratulations, John. Where's the champagne? <laughs> For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. History Cafe.